Ephesians chapter 4. The first four verses. Six verses, I'm sorry. Follow along and have your eyes on Scripture. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please direct your attention to the screen. I'm Frida Wilkerson. Uh, My family was involved in founding the Westside Church of God, and although my part of the family didn't come, I've always considered Westside my church, and I've always knew it was real special. I started uh, serving as an assistant to the nursery Sunday school teacher when I became a Christian. And I have served as teacher, vacation Bible school. Now I work in the nursery when it's my turn, and I'm on the board right now. Oh, it means everything to me. When my kids went to college, my husband left. It was like the first time in my life I've ever lived by myself. And I knew that coming to church was the thing to do in my head. I didn't know it in my heart yet, but I knew in my head that I needed to be in a church with a church family. And they've just, it's just been everything to me. It's just changed completely. I used to uh, do things because I wanted to, me. Uh, Now I do for others. I try to do for others. Uh, I let others do for me as well, but it's it's impacted my life totally. I've Since I became a Christian, I've, I feel more love. I have more friends. It's just, it's just a wonderful life. I would say jump over that fence and run to Jesus as fast as you can because I lived half of my life on the wrong side of the fence with my back to him and uh, I, I, I can't explain how, how much more loving, more friends, more family, everything is just so much better if you commit. But you've got to, you've got to go all the way. You just can't stay around the fringe. You've got to jump in with both feet. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Westside. And just full disclosure, I'm Amp Jacked and had a lot of caffeine this morning, so I'm ready to roll, man. And we are starting a new sermon series today entitled One and Many. And so you're going to be hearing from people um, in the life of this church. And the whole premise of this sermon series is in the title. And the description that we see within the New Testament church is one body. 
Um, there's always the language used of this living organism, this body, this one body that has many members. And just to preface and let you know sort of where we're going, also in this series, we're going to be looking at spiritual gifts and how God has gifted each member to serve the whole body. And one of the things that we're doing to supplement this sermon series is out there in the lobby, we have a book by a theologian by the name of Sam Storms, and it's called The Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts. Um, That book is on sale out there. It cost us $12 to get it. We're selling it to you for $10. We only have 40 copies of those, and then when those are gone, you got to pay the extra two bucks and get it off Amazon or something like that, okay? But that's really going to be answering a lot more questions, quite frankly, in time that I won't be able to address on Sunday mornings. But this is what we're looking at. We're looking at what is the church of Jesus Christ? What does it look like? What role do I have in this? And how has God empowered his people to accomplish the mission that he has given them? And really when you look at the struggle of the church, but not just the church, in any business organization or really any society, there's always a tension between two things. The tension is always between consumers and contributors, right? So that's not just true in the church. That's true at your workplace. That's true in the great United States of America. That's true in any society where there is people. There's a tension of kind of who does the work, who contributes, who consumes, and who does all of that. And actually, you can trace this back even in the history of our nation. In 1917, the United States Army really flooded the news and newspapers with some political recruiting for the first two great world wars. And they had the image of the famous Uncle Sam pointing out, and he said, I want you, right? And so it was this great sort of tribute to what made us who we are, which was people willing to enlist in the army to sacrifice their personal preferences and needs for greater good. As time went on and there were two world wars and many things happened, Watergate and all types of things, things sort of started to shift. And actually, if you study the history, the recruitment and enlisting aspect plummeted greatly. It dropped down. And so the U.S. Army came back reestablished some things, and actually changed their slogan in 1980. And they changed it from, I want you with Uncle Sam, do you guys remember these commercials, to be all that you can be. Now, if you study advertisement or anything like that, there's a subtle change of motivation there. The first one from Uncle Sam was this idea of um, self-sacrifice, almost being like a hero, almost coming along. It's not about fulfilling anything necessarily that you want, but sacrificing your desires for the greater good. But then the army realized we actually have to appeal to something in someone to literally show that they can have a benefit themselves. So then they shifted the idea to, if you enlist, it will fulfill something for yourself. And then it's changed all through the years to sort of enlist and do those things. But when you look at that subtle movement in in our nation, I believe the Western church has also fallen into that as well. Because when you look at the establishment of the church... It came into this understanding, and one of the most beautiful pictures that we have is in Acts chapter 2, 
And in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45, it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the birthing of this. It's the first picture that we have in Acts of the very first Christians, the very first church, the very first commitment of believers living life together. And there's a tension there already. There is a diversity of people, but they're unified as well. But then as time goes on, and if you study any type of surveys now... If you asked someone, Lifeway a couple of years ago, did a random research and asked random church members and non-Christians themselves as to what they wanted in a church body. What is it to be a part of the local church? And basically when you summarize that study, it comes down to this. All benefits and no commitment. Literally, I don't want to live too close to people to where I'm held accountable, but I would love the benefits that those type of things offer. So there's a tension that that we have here within the church. But in Acts chapter 4, what we're going to be in over these next couple of weeks in verses 1 through 16 is we're going to look at the picture that the Apostle Paul tells us as to what a church is supposed to be. And so all through this series, you're going to see different videos of people who have sort of crossed that threshold to make Westside their home church. And what you're going to see in this and in the context of this is in the first three chapters of this book, the Apostle Paul, it's, it's where we get amazing grace, right? Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God that no one may boast. Some of the most beautiful verses ever. And in the first three chapters of the book, The Apostle Paul is giving us doctrine, gospel doctrine, right? But then in the last three chapters of the book, he moves from doctrine to duty as to what it looks like to live what we believe in community with other believers. And if you picked up a thread on anything that was being read to you, this idea of unity was there. So the big idea today that we're going to understand as to what is the church is this. The church is a diversity of people that are a unity of people that are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a great tension there, isn't there? We are a diversity that's a unity. Now, we are not a diversity of people that are a unity of people who all agree that Colin Kaepernick should... Oh, see, huh? Right? Come on, man. It was right there. All right? So listen, here's what's great about this is that we are a diversity of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political views, different all types of things. But at the end of the day, we're a diversity of people that are a unity of people, that we are one body, but we are many members. And really, when you think about the difference of a unity being, a diversity being a unity, sometimes we we view that in a wrong way. Sometimes we think maybe like for for an illustration, a diversity that's a unity, we could think of a bag of marbles, if you will. And so, yes, it's, it's one bag of marbles, right? But no matter what you do, no matter how hard you press, no matter how much you try to make those marbles one, they are still very isolated from one another. That's not the picture of the church, 
the picture of the church is not so much a bag of marbles as it is more so a cluster of grapes. Because when you think about that, is it's a diversity, that's a unity. It's different colors, it's different sizes, it's different shapes, but we're still connected to one thing. And Jesus actually told this to his disciples. He said these words in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So what's interesting about this is we are one body, but many members. I heard Francis Chan one time, um, an author and preacher, say when he was praying over some difficult church members in his church, he said, God, I know we're one body and many members. I just don't know what body part those people are, okay? I love that. That's great. And here's the thing that will always kill us as a church, is if we try to make that diversity one complete unity and we're cookie cutter the same. What's difficult about the church body is that there's tension there. And what we're going to learn all through this series is, is that God has made you a part of the church, the big church universal, but the local church as well as Westside. But he's not only made you a part of his covenant family, but he's also gifted you. That every single person who is a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit of God living within them. Oh man, that was a horrible amen because I just gave you like some serious news. The Apostle Paul would say later on in the book of Romans that the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. Oh man, that's incredible. So we have these supernatural abilities and gifts to sort of heal the body and serve the body. But this week, if our thesis is what we see in the text, the church is a diversity of people that are a unity of people, and the commonality is Jesus, the question that begs us from the text is this. What does unity require of us? What does unity require of us? And the first thing that we see in the text is this, that unity requires work. Unity requires work. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, right? <laughs> right? We always say, we get it, Paul, okay? You're in prison, right? Super. No, I'm just teasing. I would write that all the time, man, right? <laughs> all the time. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here it is, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here it is, verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity. The word that he uses for maintain is a military word, which actually means to stand at guard and to keep watch over. It's a verb. It means that there's action there. So here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul is already going against some of our preconceived notions. That unity in a family is not just something that happens naturally. But rather, it's more like a garden. It's something that we have to till and toil and cultivate. 
And in verse 2, he gives us the elements to be able to do that. So if unity requires work, the first thing is this, humility starts the work. Humility is what starts this. Look in verse 2, with all humility. Isn't it crazy? It's right there in the text. It's like the points come from the Bible. It's crazy, right? The word that he uses for humility there, in ancient Greek literature, we never have it used from Aristotle to Socrates to all of these guys. The word is a massive word, and it's never used in a positive light. Did you know that in ancient Greek literature, this was a derogatory term used for slaves? But the Apostle Paul says, for us as Christians, this is actually the first thing. And, and, and it's this idea to be of low mind. Not, not to stand tall above people, but rather in the ancient times, slaves were people who washed other people's feet and served other people. And we see this fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, right? And isn't it interesting? Here's one argument that you actually can never make against Jesus or the church is that Jesus Christ is never going to ask something of you that he has not already fulfilled himself. Never. Um, years ago, when I had moved back home to be with my parents, we were in a small town over there in Donovan, and I got work with um, a guy that was in my parents' congregation, and he was a plumber. And so it was hard work, it was manual labor, and one of the first days on the job, we were underneath the house, and we were putting in some black iron pipe, and there were wrenches, and there was all kinds of stuff, and I was like the lackey, right? So I ran to the toolbox and did all this stuff, and we were underneath the house, and it was a tough position and all of that, and my boss said, hey, I need you to run to the toolbox and grab this wrench, So I sort of like shimmied my way out from underneath the house and took my time and went to the toolbox, came back under. And then that day when he dropped me back off at my car, he said, hey, um, I just want to tell you something. When I tell you to run to the toolbox, I, I need you to run to the toolbox. And I thought, bro, chill out, man, right? Like, who are you to ask this of me? And then a couple weeks later, we were underneath the house I needed a wrench, and I asked Carl, hey, can you run to the toolbox? And I looked through the air vents underneath the house, and I saw that man run, well older and well my superior. And I realized, man, he's not asking anything of me that he himself is not going to do as well. You see, that's what makes the church of Jesus Christ so unique is we have one Lord, and that's Jesus, and we worship a guy who was murdered on a cross. So how in the world could we stand over in lordship of each other? I heard one pastor say, leadership without relationship is a dictatorship. That's not the way that leadership works within the church. But humility is what starts this work. But look at what ends it and brackets it. Love. Humility starts the work, but love keeps the work. And of course, there's everything. There's gentleness. There's patience. There's bearing with one another. But what's the motivation? What is the motivation for all of it? Love. Humility starts the work, but love 
keeps the work. So I'm, I'm reading a book right now written by a sociologist that talks about highly successful groups. What makes some companies successful and other companies not successful? And did you know that when you walk into a room or you enter into a social environment, the very first thing that your brain does is it assesses the situation whether it is safe or not. Now, I don't mean safe from just physical harm, but I mean socially safe as well. And he said the very first element of highly successful groups is that every member of the group reassures another member that this is a safe place for you. Now, look at these elements. This is why I love the Bible. Like the Apostle Paul is talking about Google and highly successful groups long before any socioeconomist guy or anybody like that is studying highly successful groups. And he's saying love is the greatest motivation. Now listen, you're going to hear that a lot in this series because that was Jesus' greatest motivation for us. And we have in church history the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John and walked with Jesus who was boiled alive because of his love for Jesus Christ. And we have church history records that on the Lord's day in the Lord's house they would carry the Apostle John in when he was 90 plus years old, carry him in on a stool, sit him in the middle of the congregation and he would whisper because he couldn't speak loud enough and he would simply say this, Love one another. And then the next time, he would come in and they would carry him in. And he would sit right in the middle and he would say, Little children, love one another. Listen, the spiritual mark in your life of spiritual maturity is measured by the least amount of love that you have for someone. It's not about Bible studies and theology and all of that. Yes, our doctrine drives our duty. But at the end of the day, it is a love that we have for each other. But let's flip the coin. If the Apostle Paul says that all of these things, humility is essential to community, then it's also accurate to say that pride kills a community, right? And so I thought this would be fun. I thought that we could look at signs of vanity in community and offend everybody in here. You want to do that? Let's go. Number one, here's some signs of vanity in community. The first thing is this. You were always the one giving the advice. What you do is sometimes we surround ourselves with people that we know that we can keep at arm's length and that will never challenge us and spur us. And so we are always the spiritually mature one. And one of the things that's never talked about in leadership, and one of the things that I was never warned of for the trappings of being a pastor, is the addiction to be needed. We often feel deep in our bones that we have to be needed. And what we do is we surround ourselves with people who are just a little bit less, so I can always be the one giving advice, and I am needed all the time. That's a sign of vanity. The next sign is this. You surround yourself with people for what they can do, not for who they are. So I know I need to keep this person close because if I ever come in a financial pinch, then I can mention this in community group and kind of do this. And we like them because we got this house and we can do all of this or they're always there to do this. And when you do that within the church, people become projects and not people. People become an item to be used rather than someone created in the image and likeness of God to be loved. 
So it's not for who they are, but rather for what they can do. But the next thing is this. You never surround yourself with anyone because uh, people just don't get me. Right? You ever heard that before? Well, I have a tough time sometimes in community because people just can't handle my personality. Yeah, bro, because no one likes you, okay? I mean, goodness gracious. And one of the problems with that is, is, is that is a sign of pride, Quote, people just don't get me. And really what you're doing in relational terms is you're saying, I will not subside and come down off of my high horse so we can be on equal playing grounds. This is just who I am. That'll kill a community. But the last, probably most common thing that I hear from people not wanting to get involved is you exclude yourself from people because I just know what people are really like. Well, you know, I did the church thing in the past and did all I know. I got to love one another and do all that. Yeah. Ever been to a business meeting before? Huh? Huh? Yeah, we had a great one. You should come sometime. It's fantastic. We read the Bible and pray together, right? Well, I'm not going to get close because I know that, you know, somebody might need something from me because I really know how people are. And uh, one of the things I oftentimes hear from non-Christians is, man, I'm not going to join a church because a church is oftentimes just filled with hypocrites. And my response is, yes, and there's room, so come be a part of us. (laughs) Because you're awesome? Like, because you've got it all together? Francis Schaeffer asked a question one time to some fellow pastors and said this, what if God never used the Ten Commandments or the life of Jesus Christ as his standard? Never. And on the day of judgment, what we give a reckoning for is the standard by, in which we held other people to. That's the standard in which you will be judged. I mean, when you put it in terms like that, you realize humility and love is all that we have. Yes, unity in a diversity requires work, but the motivation is love. And listen, the whole purpose and goal behind this is this, that when the church as a family is unified, then God as our Father is glorified. It doesn't just end with us. It doesn't just end with Westside. It doesn't just end with, oh man, that's a good church. Like that would break my heart if that's all that's ever said of us. What I would love and desire and pray that is said of us is that is a group of people who love Jesus. That's the goal. Because when we are unified as a body, Jesus says that the world looks at that group of people And in this climate, in this political and economic climate where there is either you're against or you're for or you're hated or you're idolized or any of that, that there is a safe community of people who are humble to each other, who do not think more highly than they ought, and their motivation for each other is birthed out of the love of Jesus Christ. The church is a diversity of people that are a unity of people. And that unity requires work. Humility is what starts it. And love is what keeps it. But there's something else here that the Apostle Paul talks about, and that's in verse 4. That unity in a diversity requires worship. It's not just work, but it is worship. Did you pick up on how many times the word one is used in that verse? 
in verses 3 and 4 all the way down to verse 6, the word one is used seven times. Now, he urged us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Like, can we just stop and ponder on that? This isn't even in my notes, and this is free, so I'll probably say something I shouldn't say, but it's okay, right? Did you know that you have a calling? Listen, man, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I just feel that the Holy Spirit dropped a message in my mailbox for somebody, but I don't care what you're going through. I don't care who you are. I don't care the sufferings and the season that you're in, but you have a calling placed upon your life by the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, that he, not, that he didn't just save you, It wasn't just like, whew, on the resurrection Sunday, he was like, well, I'm done. You know, dying and resurrecting, I'm done. But it wasn't just the fact that he saved you, but that he wants to have a relationship with you and that he has a calling placed upon your life. And that's what Paul urges us in. But he says that we're diverse, but we're unified. Maybe this will help. Um, A couple of years ago, I had the privilege and opportunity of doing a funeral for a family member that suffered and, and died of cancer. And this play, we had it in here, and it was packed out, and it was awesome. But one of the things that I loved about it was there was all different types of people here. I mean, there were really, really, really wealthy people here. And then there were really, really sketchy people here, right? And I loved walking around, talking, and asking man, how do you know this person? And it was, oh, man, it's the best boss I've ever worked for. And, man, anytime I ever needed anything, I was here. And when I stood up and spoke at that funeral, I looked out at a sea of diversity. But they were unified. And they were unified in their experience in the life that they had lived with this individual. What the Apostle Paul is saying about us as Christians is, listen, there are Christians in Syria, in Russia, in Africa, and in Popper Bluff, Missouri. And we are diverse, and we are spread all abroad, but we are unified. And we're unified by one person, being Jesus Christ. And so, what are we worshiping? What is this? The first thing that we see is this. We are one body because of one spirit. So Paul's talking about God the Holy Spirit, right? And listen, we're going to get into, uh, into some stuff in this series, right? Some of you who grew up charismatic and Pentecostal are going to just be like nuts, like, yeah, we're doing it, man, this is great, right? Those of you who grew up Baptist are like, I'm nervous right now. Got to raise my hand, oh my goodness, right? But here's one of the great errors that I see all of the time in the church. It's either God the Father, God the Son, and God an emotional experience, Or it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. And we don't talk about it. We don't talk about emotions, right? You better love the Lord, brother, right? You're like, oh, my goodness. And then there's something crazy like WWE, Benny Hinn, let the bodies hit the floor stuff. And you're like, what is going on? And so we're going to get into some proper theology on these things. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is every person, what he would go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is nobody can confess with a true repentant heart that Jesus is Lord apart from the working of God the Holy Spirit. So we are one body. And listen, when you hear in China like this past week, the churches that were kicked in and set on fire and Bibles burned, listen, you should weep as if that was your own children or your own family members. 
because we are one body because of one spirit. But it's not just one body because of one spirit. It's one hope because of one Lord. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. Did you know that our hope, right? A positive expectation. Hope is holding on to the fact that what God has said will happen. That's hope. And we have a hope that Jesus Christ said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the Holy Spirit and he will come and he will give you power and he will remind you, but that's not it. While you're doing my kingdom work, I'm also coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to make every injustice right and truth will prevail. That is our common hope. So we're working towards something together. And this is one vision. Do you know the definition of the word division? Division? Die means two. So if there's division in the church, there are two visions. And our vision is oftentimes ran by our hope. What we hope for is what we long for, and what we long for is what we work toward. So we have to get this common vision and hope that it's all about Jesus. And that it's more people coming to know Jesus. And then it's more people finding their giftings that Jesus has given them. And then those people go tell people about Jesus. And then those people that those people told about Jesus get the giftings of Jesus. And then those people go get people that that person went and told that person about. And they go get Jesus. And then we got like a million people who are loving Jesus. That's the hope that we have. It's one body because of one spirit. We have one hope because of one Lord. But then it's also one family because of one father. And that's God the Father who is in all and made all. You know, I'll never forget when Courtney told me that we were pregnant with our second child, more so her than me on the pregnant thing, right? It was, you know. And so I I remember like Roman made me a dad and he's my buddy and all of that. And I'm the youngest of four boys, and so when we had a boy, I was prepared for that. This is awesome. I can handle that rebellion. I can handle all that stuff. I'm okay. And then we found out that it was going to be a girl, and I was like, Lord Jesus, right? (laughs) And listen, I'm just going to be honest with you, right? And if you have never had this thoughts, and you're more spiritual than me, I cried one night, and I told Courtney, I said, how am I going to love this child as much as I love Roman? Like, well, I love it the same, right? Like... And you as parents know this, right? That God just does something in your heart. He just gives you that love. It's, same, it's the same love. It's just different. Because that's a different person. We are one family. Because we are God's offspring. God the Father. And listen, God doesn't just have Billy Graham up on the refrigerator, okay? And his report card, right? He probably did pretty well. That's why I'm using his as an example, right? God doesn't have like an all-star list on the refrigerator. He has one family because he is the one father of it all. And do you know how motivational this is for us? Tim Keller uses this illustration. He says, imagine that you're in a foreign land and it's a scary land. Imagine you're somewhere where communism reigns and, and you don't know the language and you don't know the culture and it's, and it's threatening and it's, and it's scary and you're working day in and day out and you feel so alone. And then one day, let's say you're over in Russia or something like that, and then all of a sudden you hear 
that southeast Missouri accent. <laughs> somebody says skaters. There's a lot of skaters in this room right now. And you go, did somebody just say skaters, right? Oh, my goodness. And then you find out, oh, yeah, I'm from southeast Missouri as well. And then, and then you sit down at a table and you drink a Coca-Cola and, in a, uh, and you eat uh, apple pie and you just yell America together, right? And you're like, oh, this is unbelievable, right? Tim Keller said that that should be the same way for us as Christians walking this earth. That when you're at your workplace and you hear someone say something like, man, I just... I need to pray about that. Your ears should perk up and go, we're in the same family, man. We got the same dad. We're a part of this thing together. Because it's a diversity, but we're a unity. And that unity requires work. That we've got to maintain the bond of peace together. And some of us are working hard. We're almost war slick, right? But keep going because we have the same hope. But what also causes us to be a unity is what we're worshiping. And it's one God, and it's one Jesus, and it's the Holy Spirit who's gifted us for all of these things. So as we close in response, each time this during this series, I'm going to close with what I'm going to call some discipleship action steps. Because here's what you don't need. You do not need to listen to me just speak and give another sermon. There's a million podcasts on YouTube. There's all kinds of better preachers, all this type of stuff. But we want to implement some things. How can you take this news that the church is a diversity of people that are a unity of people that are purchased by Jesus? How does that apply to my life? The first thing that I want you to do this week is this. Ask the people closest to you what they believe your best and worse traits are. Just ask your spouse, right? Hey, what do you think is my best quality? What do you think the best thing is? And listen, here's what we're going to do during this series, man. We're going to get a little just kind of Baptocostal up in here and just kind of get a little charismatic. We're going to speak life into each other. We're going to speak life into each other. We're going to go, you know what, man, I believe that you have this quality in your life, and it's unbelievable. The way that you have mercy for people, the way that you serve people, the way that you give, the way that you're generous, it's unbelievable to me. I'm better because I'm around you. But here's also what we have to do. It requires work. And do you know how how often we are unself-aware of ourselves? Like, we have no idea sometimes how we come across, what we say, and what we do. And so we're going to have to be bold to each other and say, hey, by maintaining the bond of peace, I think sometimes that you don't realize that you shut down, become passive, and run away. Or sometimes that when you speak, it's like you're on a spiritual mountain that only Moses and Elijah are on, and I could never attain that. We have to do this. So listen, I want you to do this, right? At lunch, this will be a great awkward lunch for you today, okay? But the second thing is this. I want you to spend some time with someone this week sharing your testimonies with each other. Not somebody that you already know, somebody that was in your pod, somebody that was in your community. That's easy. That's easy. I want you to do that. Somebody that you kind of know but don't really know. And listen, I want you to listen to how diverse your stories are. How different it all is. But I also want you to hear how good the same Jesus is that saved you, saved them. And when you listen to that story and you say, that is so different. But it's the same Jesus that we have with each other. That's the beauty of this thing. There's a great early church father that has been forever immortalized in the Catholic church by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. 
And in your bulletin, you have one of his famous prayers of unity within the life of the church. I want us to stand right where we're at and read this prayer corporately out loud together. And this is my prayer for the entire series, that this would drop from our head down to our hearts. Grab that insert and let's read this corporate prayer out loud together. Westside, lift your voice. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that through one God and Father of all, through one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and through the power of one Holy Spirit, that you would make the diversity that is in this room a unity. And that we would work to keep the bond of peace. And that we would all fall at Calvary's hill worship the same Jesus. God, as we come to the same table, the same cup, and the same bread, we see there's our motivation of humility, of love, and compassion, and peace. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy, and in the mighty, and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can come forward and partake in the table as you feel led today.